When you walk into a fancy restaurant, why does Mater D treat you like royalty? When you start browsing around the showroom of a GM dealer, why does the salesman greet you warmly and offer a cup of coffee? It doesn't take too long for many of us to cynically conclude that outgoing friendliness is simply a mask for greed. But is the cynicism right? Can we find someone who genuinely reaches out to us with no ulterior motives? Our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, challenges us to ask this question, is God outgoing? I'm sure all of you have had the experience of trying to buy a car. And I remember one day, Mary and I, when our old Suburban was old, and we wanted to kind of look around. We went to some used car places, and we walked in, and the guy would come out. He just bubbles, bubbles enthusiasm. He says, hello, my name is Fred. I say, my name is Dave, and he shakes my hand, and why don't you come on over here and sit down in the lounge, and can I get you some coffee, can I get you a soft drink, and everything is bubbles, and everything is enthusiasm, and everything is warmth and intimacy, right? Anybody ever had that experience? You walk into a restaurant. It's one of those fancy restaurants, you know, where they don't, they don't have enough electricity to turn the lights up. It's real dark, and you walk in there, and the guy meets you at the door, the maitre d', and he says, Sir, glad to have you here tonight, and we have your reservation made, and he carefully escorts you into sitting down, and the waiter comes out and even pulls out your seat and takes your napkin and folds it in your lap and everything. Man, it's a far cry from McDonald's. The waiter just gushing over you, right? Or suppose you go out and your insurance agent says, listen, I got some golf tickets. You need to come with me. And man, you go to the golf club. It's one of those real expensive jobs. You've got a golf cart and everything else. Your insurance agent just pays for the whole 18 holes, right? Now, isn't that love? Isn't that outgoing, enthusiastic, warm, open relationship? What do you think? Isn't that really the kind of intimacy and the kind of reconciliation that we need between people? Well, what happens, what happens when you don't buy the truck? What happens when you don't leave a big tip? What happens when you don't buy the insurance policy? Anybody ever had that happen? Right, sure. And what we find out is we find out that, that people will be open, not that all insurance agents or car salesmen or, or waiters are going to respond like that, but you understand what I mean? We all understand that in the real world as it is, people will gush warm love, they'll be open, they'll be honest. But you know, a lot of times we find out that it's just self-interest. And we begin to ask the question as we grow older, we become cynical, and we begin to ask, is there anybody, is there anybody in all the world that reaches out to me and wishes my greatest good just because they want to. No angle, no ax to grind, just want to have relationships. Is there anybody like that? And I think that deep in the human soul, that's what everybody on planet Earth wants. All over this world, I think that we deep in our soul, we're hungry to find somebody that connects with us for a relationship, not to get in our pocket, not to get something that we have, but to get inside of us and we can get inside of them and can have relationship. The essence of missions raises this question. Is God outgoing? Is God one that reaches out to us like a, a used car salesman, but with no angle? Is he one that gushes love upon us like a maitre d' at a restaurant? Is he an insurance agent that really has our very best interest at heart? But I believe the answer to that question is a resounding yes. 
God is outgoing. And most of us, as we live this life, we become less and less outgoing. Most of us, as we grow older, begin to move from having a large circle of friends to becoming narrower and narrower and narrower. And the reason we do that is because we're hurt. We've been hurt in relationship. We've been hurt by people letting us down. People have deceived us. And so we start being like a turtle that draws all the fleshly parts in, all the soft parts in. And that's what kills us in missions. You see, the problem of missions is getting people to be outgoing towards other people. That's what the Great Commission is all about that we've been studying. Go and make disciples. Where? Of how many people? All people. So how many people does God want to go out to? How many people is God reaching out to? And yet, I know in my own life, if someone speaks a different language than me, if someone has a different color skin than I do, if someone from a different social background than I do, and we've been wrestling with some of those blocks to being open, I find that there's a part of me that runs towards the people that are like me. How about you? Runs towards the people that I know. Run towards the people that I'm comfortable with. And I feel safe. And it's really hard to get me to be outgoing towards other people, people I haven't met, people that I haven't ever had the opportunity to get to know. And if we're ever going to accomplish mission, we need to get a hold of the heart of God, that God is an outgoing God. You say, Dave, how do you know that God is an outgoing God? Because you're here today. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1 at the very beginning of the Bible. We learn about God's outgoingness. God's desire for relationship, his desire to reach out to others. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we read a very important verse, and it's the beginning of mission. It's the beginning of why there ultimately is the command to go and make disciples of every nation. Look what it says in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us, now what does that mean, let us? It means that right in the divine Godhead, there is relationship. We've learned that when we studied about the nature of God. Let us, I believe in the full revelation of the New Testament, it implies that there is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who is the true God behind all things. And what God is saying at the very beginning of time is, let us, is that he is relationship. There is an eternal loving intimacy, an openness, a, a tenderness, a, a complete integration of personalities right within the Holy Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So God doesn't really need us in order to meet his needs because all of his needs are met in the social oneness, the loving oneness of the Trinity. But you know what? His love is so powerful and so overflowing that though he doesn't really need us, he's free in himself, not dependent upon us. He chooses to do something very important. Look what it says. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. I believe that what God is saying is that his love is so outgoing that he can't just keep it limited within his own being, but he wants to create people that will be like him, you and me. And God is outgoing. It's right there in Genesis chapter 1. We're created. Mankind was created because God is outgoing. You ever stop and think about that? You see, when you're driving down the road, if someone catches your eye, what's the first thing you do? You look at them more carefully, don't you? The first thing you do when somebody smiles at you and catches your eye is you turn away, right? Why? Why do we do that? We don't keep looking at people. We turn away. You know why? Because we're alienated. 
If it's a guy and a girl, we do that because we don't want them to think that we're coming on to them, right? I mean, just think of all the breakdowns and, and all the alienation between us. In fact, if someone is too warm, too quick, what do you think? If you come up north with me, where I just came back from, and a southerner's up there gushing over everybody and hugging everybody, you know what the Yankees think? How are they trying to cheat me? What are they trying to do to me? They don't like that. Why? Because we're alienated. Evidently, the Northeast is more alienated than we are down here sometimes. You see, automatically, in the human race, we're alienated. But what I want you to understand is that God is not. Your God is not turning his eyes away from you. He's not turning away from you. In fact, in the very beginning of time, he created us because he wanted to connect with us. He wanted to connect with all mankind. What happened? Man turned away from him. You all know this story well. Genesis chapter 3, we read about the fall of Adam and Eve and how they fell into sin. And man, you'd expect what has happened in a lot of the relationships that you've had. A lot of relationships that you have is that someone's tried to give their love to you. They tried to reach out to you. And then you've been rejected. And when you get rejected, what do you do next? We turn away right in anger. So God reached out to mankind, created Adam and Eve, gave them a perfect environment, gave them everything they could ever want, gave them one simple command, not to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The first thing they do is eat the tree. What's God going to do now? Well, I would expect, in light of what I've observed about human relationships, is that God would go like that and just eliminate Adam and Eve and let's start again with a new model. Is that what God did? No, look what we read. It says... In chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they rushed forth to greet the Lord God with enthusiasm and praise and great anticipation of their warm evening together. How many have that in their Bible? Anybody have that in their Bible? Why doesn't it read like that? And they, the man heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And why didn't they rush to meet him? Because of alienation. Because sin brings alienation. They hid themselves from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Now, how do you feel when someone's turning away from you? Somebody's hiding from you. Someone doesn't want to get close to you. I know the way I feel. I feel like, man, tough bananas on you. If you're going to be like that, if you're going to act like a jerk, go ahead. And we'll just reach out to some other people to be warm and friendly and, and bring us in. But notice what God did. It says that God called to the man. And he said, where are you? God is outgoing. God is reconciling. And even giving the judgments against man's sin, every one of the curses have God's blessing and the ultimate promise of reconciliation. In fact, right in the promise to Eve, it says, remember that famous verse, look at verse 15, where it says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head. The great Messiah will crush the head of the dragon. And yet he will be struck on the heel. And so we have the ultimate promise of God's reconciliation right here in Genesis chapter 3. Need another example. You come down through the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. God told the people living on planet Earth after the flood that they needed to do one thing. They needed to have lots of kids and they needed to scatter out over all the earth. Is that that difficult to command? Is that, that pro a big problem? No. In Genesis, we read that the very first thing that people do as they begin to gather together after the flood is that in Genesis chapter 11, we're going to stay in one place. We're going to build this gigantic tower. 
and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And so they totally disobey the command of God in Genesis chapter 11. And instead of scattering out, they all conglomerate together so they can have infectious diseases and everything else. Instead of enjoying all the beautiful places on the earth, they're going to live there on the plains of Shinar and build this big skyscraper. What does God do? He comes down and changes their language and scatters them out. As we end Genesis chapter 11, you'd expect it has a genealogy, but before we get to that, it says this. From there, in verse, chapter 11 of verse 9, it says, From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now that's alienation. Here's everybody going. That's why there needs to be missions today. Here we have the language barrier. Here we have the geographical barrier. And we would expect that's the end. Everyone's scattered out. But we read in Genesis chapter 12 that the Lord God said to Abraham, I want you to leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you, this is Genesis 12 verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the what? How many peoples? All the people on the earth are going to be blessed. All the people on the earth will be blessed. God is outgoing. God reaches out. He doesn't just clam up and get just in himself. Even when man is rejecting him, he keeps reaching out. What about the children of Israel down in Egypt? Exodus chapter 3. They've been in Egypt for 400 years in slavery. And they're praying to God to deliver them. And Exodus chapter 3 tells a story about how God reached into Moses' life and called him out to become a deliverer for his people. Turn to Isaiah 49. We'll look at one more of the Old Testament one. Isaiah chapter 49 and see how God's outgoingness reached out to us. In Isaiah chapter 49, we begin with verse 5, where it's talking about the ultimate servant of the Lord. It's talking about a special one that the Lord is calling out. It tells us about his background. It tells us about his character. It tells us about the suffering servant that the Lord is going to use to touch people's lives throughout the world. Look what it says in verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be a servant. And we know that ultimately that would be Jesus being formed in the womb of Mary. To bring Jacob back to himself and to gather Israel to himself. So one of the purposes of the servant is going to be to gather Israel back to himself. And I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, then God says, we're going to alter the command for this servant just slightly. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant. To restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Look at that verse. I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's mission. That's why we need to be an outgoing group of believers, because we are following a Savior who had a plan to reach the Jewish people. We must never exclude that. The plan for the suffering servant was to reach out to Israel, to reach out to Jews. But in Isaiah 49, God says, but that's going to be too little a thing. That's going to be too little a thing. We need to also reach out to all the Gentiles as well. And so we have the outgoingness of God. Now there's a famous verse that all the kids know. All the kids quote to me, John 3.16. All the kids. Everybody together? For, let's all do it. For God so loved the world. Let's do that part again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have an outgoing God. 
We have a God that keeps reaching out to people with his heart. And the big question that I want to raise is, do we have that kind of a heart? Are we entering into that kind of a ministry? I want to ask you, as you're around unbelieving people, how do you feel about unbelievers? Like when you're working with unbelievers at work, how do you feel about them? Do you feel close? You know, like, do you feel that you want to reach out to them? Or do you find, like, for example, like if you're with a bunch of unbelievers, they'll start cussing, right? A lot of times they'll tell dirty jokes. And we don't like those things because that hurts us. But you know, a subtle thing begins to happen in my life, and I think it's probably beginning to happen in your life as well. We begin, we begin to not like the unbeliever. We begin to be hostile towards the unbeliever. We begin to withdraw from the unbeliever. And I think it's one of the things, in fact, in traveling around and talking to lots of different groups of believers, I think that Satan is doing an incredible thing with the body of Christ today. He's causing the body of Christ to forget that God is reconciled with mankind. That the payment of Calvary has been made for us and that people can be totally forgiven and instead we have a great hostility towards people. We have a great anger towards people. And what we do is we get in our little groups, we get in our little churches, we get in our little Bible conferences, we might say, we get in our little schools, and we don't have any contact, we don't have any contact with the rest of the world. And what's happening today, it's not just a barrier of countries, but it's a barrier of businesses. It's a barrier where there's whole businesses, where there's no light where there's nobody there that really presents the gospel or will go public with it, you know, will stop being incognito. There's, there's universities, there's whole universities that have been completely abandoned to the light because, because believers are too afraid and they gather in their little groups and they say, man, I, I, you know, I, I don't like those unbelievers. And it's something I've really been thinking about. I've been asking myself, do I really, really like unbelievers? Do I have an open heart towards unbelievers? Do I care about unbelievers? And the illustration that's really gripped my own heart in the time that I've been away and thinking about this is an illustration of, I, I pictured several hundred of you, and I want you to all think of yourselves as being doctors and nurses. We're having a great convention today, okay? Now, we've met for the last three or four days, and we've had all kinds of discussion about cures for malignancy, and let's suppose that we're super doctors, so that we've found incredible cures for malignancy. We've had a discussion about eating healthy and, and losing weight, and about the healing that we can have in a program, and a very insightful program about how to help people. We've learned about how to lower cholesterol. We've learned about exercises program. We've learned an incredible amount of stuff about health. Most of all, we've discovered how to live forever and ever and ever and ever. We found the secret of the fountain of youth. But let's suppose that we're a bunch of medical doctors, and as we begin to meet at the table, we begin to talk, and we begin just finding out that the medical doctors, you know, they hate pus. One of the doctors at, at a meal says, you know, man, you know, when there's an infection, man, there's pus all over it, and it oozes that, that ugly yellow, white, gooey stuff. I don't like that. One of the nurses chimed in and says, man, you know, when we do surgery, sometimes there's blood that goes everywhere and it makes such a mess on the operating table. When I first started president, when we were down there at Parkland Hospital in the emergency room, blood was gushing everywhere and I hated it. 
and we begin to listen all around and around and around, and what we find out is that these doctors hate disease and these nurses hate disease. But you know what else that we found out? We start to ask them, when was the last time you saw a patient? When was the last time you saw and tried to help someone that was sick? And these doctors and nurses start to also say, no, we just have conventions. You see, we just get together. We, we talk about this. In fact, we get together once a week to have a convention about bringing healing to people. But we don't see any sick people. You see, to be honest with you, sickness reeks. Sickness is bad news. In fact, sickness is even dangerous. Do you realize if you help sick people, you might get sick yourself? And so we got a bunch of doctors and nurses that haven't ever seen any sick people in the last year, the last two years, the last three years. What do you think of a medical community like that? What would you think about a medical community that had all of that skill? The reason you pay doctors big bucks is because they've been given a tremendous gift. They have great skill to bring healing to us. But you know what? The medical doctors that I know, the medical doctors that I know, you know what they do? They see sometimes 50, sometimes 55 patients a day, some of them. And they'll do it. Like some of my friends that are doctors, one of the biggest things you have to do in ministering to them is to pull them back, to make sure that they get answering services and they, and they have family days at home where, the, where one of their colleagues takes their place because they've got a passion to be with sick people. They have a passion. The believing doctors that I know, you know, they, 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 they feel such a burden because the Lord has given them these gifts and they want to help the people that are sick. And, and when a child comes in, like the pediatrician friend that I have, when, when you've got a precious little child that's sick and you bring them in and the child's really in danger and threatened, what an incredible privilege to use your skills to bring healing to that child. And so those doctors are out there with sick people. Do you understand the analogy? We live in a world where all of us are sick. We live in a world where everyone has turned away from God. That's what the scripture tells us. We need to expect as we go out into our job that there's going to be pus flowing everywhere. There's going to be slander. There's going to be cussing. There's going to be dirty jokes told. There's going to be all the mess of sin. But the Lord has called us not to, not to alienate ourselves from that community. Not to withdraw from them. He's also called us not to go in there and get sick with them. You see, that's the great danger. Some of the teenagers will say, well, Dave, man, I, I really love what you said today. And man, that means I can go out and party on Friday night and get drunk with everybody. No, that's getting sick with everyone else. It's very dangerous to walk this line of being in the world, being an agent of reconciliation. But that's what the Lord's called us to be. And that's something that's the heartbeat of missions. Why do we send people out there and to the hot and tots, way out there in who knows whereville? Because our God is an outgoing God. He loves the world. That's part of the world. And why do we send somebody to France? Why do we send someone to the Philippines? Why do we send somebody down to South America? Because God is reconciling those people. They need to hear the news. But you know what I find? It's easy for us to talk about mission out there. It's harder, it's harder to get off your duff and be open and be reaching out and be enthusiastic towards the people that are all around you. And all I want to pray that the Spirit of God will help us, will help us to be able to be a community of people, that we will be like great spiritual physicians that bring the message of Jesus into people's lives that really need to hear the truth.
This whole ministry of reconciliation is talked about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And let's turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 switches from talking about God's outgoingness to the fact that we need to express God's outgoingness. This is an incredible truth in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I just explained to you how God is an outgoing God. I talked about his outgoingness in the garden. I talked to you about his outgoingness in calling Abraham, which is the beginning of really the Great Commission, of being a blessing to all the world. I've talked to you about God's outgoingness towards the children of Israel. I've talked to you about God's outgoingness in opening the door to reach all the Gentiles. We just talked about God's outgoingness to the entire world as we quoted together, for God so loved the world. But now, God does an incredible thing through his Apostle Paul. He says something incredible. You know what? How is God going to express his outgoingness, his desire to get close to people? How is God going to express that in the world today? And look what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says in verse 11, beginning with verse 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, Since then we know what it is to fear, to reverence the Lord. Since we know, according to the previous verse, one verse ahead of this one, talks about the fact that one day we're all going to stand before the Lord. And he talks about that being a great reward time, but also a time of great accountability. What he's saying is that one day all of us will face Jesus, the ultimate outgoing lover. Jesus, the ultimate one who wanted to reach out to a world. And he says, since we know that one day we're going to face that Savior, it's not because like we're cringing in fear to see him. This word, since we know that fear of the Lord, means that we reverence him. We don't take him lightly. We understand that he's really there and that he wants us to be ready to meet him. That's what it's talking about. It also brings in what it means to reverence the Lord in the Old Testament, which is the beginning of wisdom. It means that we take God seriously. We respect him. We recognize his sovereignty and his power. Since we know the fear of the Lord, the reverence of the Lord, we try to persuade men. You see, we know that ultimately one day all mankind will face the Son of God. So when you feel in your little business, and I feel when I'm at in a restaurant and the Lord opened up an opportunity with an unbeliever, and we get in one of those difficult conversations where it just seems they might be mocking our faith or they might be cursing us for our faith, we must remember that one day all of us are going to face God, like Joel was sharing with me, as they were witnessing just a few weeks ago in Israel on Ben Yehuda Street. There were some very conservative Hasidic Jews that were cursing them. There were some other believers there besides Joel's group that was seeking to proclaim the truth about Jesus and Messiah, and these conservative Jews were strongly opposing that. Joel talked about people that would just turn away. They'd curse you, and that's hard to take. Man, when somebody curses me and says, get out of here, man, I'm, I'm ready to crawl into my little hole. But what we need to remember when we're involved in that kind of activity, that one day that individual that cursed us it's going to be before the Lord. That's why we do it. It's a real, honest-to-goodness fact that one day everybody on planet Earth, the whole world, will be before God. And we've got an incredible message to tell them that right now, in this period of grace, that God is not alienated from them. God is not angry with them. They might curse him, but he's not cursing them. And that's what this passage goes on to tell us about. We try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. And that's kind of a mysterious way to talk, but what Paul is saying, just to kind of paraphrase it for you, is this. He's saying, when I taught you Corinthians, I just laid my heart before you. It wasn't any fancy talk. It wasn't any 
fancy oratory. You know what I am and you know what I believe. And that's one of the patterns of Paul. You know, what Paul is saying is, I'm just Paul. You know what I believe. I've lived among you. You know what I've been willing to suffer for. You know what I'm really committed to. You know my heart. He's just blasting through all those external things that we get involved in, the cultural thing. He says, I'm just talking to you from my heart. You know me. I know you. And I trust that that's the way we communicate together. He says, there's no razzmatazz here, no big exterior kind of a thing. We're just sharing from our heart what we really believe. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but we are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. If you're going to be an ambassador, if you're going to be an ambassador of Jesus the reconciling one, if you're going to enter into this outgoingness of God, the Apostle Paul is saying that the first creed, the first creed of an ambassador for Christ is one, they are concerned about internal changes in people, not external things. For me as a pastor, what it means is, it doesn't mean whether or not our church is big and powerful and successful from a secular standpoint. The only thing that counts is what's happening in children's lives, what's happening in teenagers' lives, what's happening in junior high's lives. The only thing that really counts is the internal things that's happened. The way God evaluates ministries is as life goes on, what has the Spirit of God done to touch lives? I want to ask you, is that what, what you're living for today? You see, what that does is, like when you meet an unbeliever, and the unbeliever is really just a strong unbeliever, very pagan, and, and won't even listen to anything that you say about Christ, but you keep loving them. You keep reaching out to them. When they need help, as time goes on, like maybe suddenly one of their children gets sick and, and you help the child, you help them get to the hospital. You know what happens? Over time, the Lord can begin to melt down some of that animosity because you're an agent that believes that the internal change can take place. Haven't internal changes taken place in a lot of you? That's what it's about. The Apostle Paul is saying that what keeps you going as an ambassador of reconciliation is that you're living for the internal change. Do you believe that that happens? Then you're ambassadors of the outgoing God. Look what else it says about these ambassadors, that they take pride not in externals but on internals. Verse 13 says, If we are out of our minds, it is for the sake of God. If we are in our right mind, it is for the sake of you. How many of you have ever had someone say to you, you are out of your mind? Don't you love it when someone says, you're an idiot. you got to be crazy. You're out of your mind. That's hard to take. But you know, the Apostle Paul, as he went through his ministry, you know what? The Apostle Paul's entire background thought he was nuts. Everybody that Paul grew up with, all the people that trained him in university, you know, when I go back to college, you know, my college friends, one of them was a pastor over near London, and another one's a Christian medical doctor in Ohio, and another one's doing research up in Rochester, and they're excited about the ministry of the Lord. I haven't been rejected by my friends from Houghton. It was a Christian college. The Apostle Paul couldn't even go back to his university reunion. They'd kill him. That's tough. Why did he do it? Because he knew the truth. He really saw Jesus on the Damascus Road. And he knew Jesus really was the promised one. And man, he needed to reach out to people because he cared. He was often called a fool. By the secular, he would appear before a secular ruler. And Agrippa would say, this guy's studied too long. You know, this guy's read too many books. He's out of his, he's out of his weenies. You know what? If you stand up for the reconciling Christ, I guarantee you, sooner or later, someone will tell you that you're nuts as well. And that's okay. That's okay. 
Because I guarantee you, I guarantee you, that you found the one Savior that when you come on the edge of eternity, that you can still find laughter in your heart. There can still be joy because Jesus keeps his promises. And Paul's saying this. He says, if I'm out of my mind for him, I'll be out of my mind. He says, if I'll be sober-minded, in other words, if I will teach you carefully, I do that for your benefit to the Corinthian believers. He's saying to the unbelieving world, they think I'm out of my mind. But when I teach you as the body of Christ, you know I'm not out of my mind. You know that we have found the ultimate sober truth, down-to-earth reality that can sustain us and give us courage forever and ever and ever. The Apostle Paul mentions a few more things. That number one, that you, an ambassador for the reconciling one cares about internals, not externals. Number two, he's willing to be called, or she's willing to be called a fool for Christ. Number three, they are compelled by Christ's love. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. The Apostle Paul mentions two final things about the ambassador for Christ. And then he lays out the essence of the gospel and the fact that Christ took our place. He says this, number one, we need to be compelled by Christ's love. We need to be moved by Christ's love. That's kind of a summary of all that I've been teaching today. Is God outgoing? Answer me. Do we follow an outgoing God? Does he care about your friends at school? Does he care about your friends at business? Is God angry with all of them? Does he want to just burn them in hell forever and ever? Is that what we've been learning about today? Is that God's heartbeat just to take the whole world and incinerate it? Often that's the way we've come across. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul says, I am compelled by Christ's love. What does it mean to be compelled by Christ's love? What did Christ do at Calvary? He hung on a cross, and how did people respond to him? When Christ was hanging on Calvary, did everyone sit there and sing with beautiful orchestras, we love you, Lord, and we lift our voice? Did they all gather together and say, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. We can feel the, the power of angels and, and everything. Is that what was happening? No. The cross was like a marketplace. It, it was where you'd come out of the city and you'd go to all different places like Damascus and over to Joppa and just all around the nation of Israel. Jesus was crucified right out in the middle of a crossroads. And people went by, just like the people that you're going to meet. And they cursed them and they laughed at them. A lot of people went by totally indifferent. There were probably hundreds of people that walked by and took a look and they'd see Roman crucifixion in the past. They had no idea the significance of what was happening there. Incredible thing that the Savior died like that. There weren't beautiful churches built. There was nothing, just a rugged cross and the agony of a man. And it says in the end of this chapter that he who knew no sin became sin for us. And then it says an incredible thing, that we might receive the righteousness of God, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Jesus died on that cross out there in the marketplace. Jesus died not in churches, not in nice, comfortable places. He died right out there in real life. And that's where we need to bring the message of reconciliation. Because it didn't end with dying out there in real life. He rose again in real life as well. We need to be compelled by Christ's love. And a question I've been asking myself again and again and again in the last several weeks is, how do I feel about an unbeliever? Do I want to be with unbelievers? I'm saying, Lord, give me a desire to be like you that way. Help me not just to be locked into this Christian environment. Help me not just to, to be comfortable with the family of God. 
Help me not to be like a doctor who has all the incredible cures, but doesn't care about people that are sick and hasn't been out there with people that are sick. And some of you, I know that through the years in your religious training, you've been taught to be separate from people. A lot of you have had training where you've been taught to divorce yourself from people, from ungodly people. Well, I want to share that you need to divorce yourself from ungodliness. You need to divorce yourself from ungodliness, but don't divorce yourself from ungodly people. They're the ones that need you. They're the ones that must hear. And the only way we can break down the barriers is to love them, is to get out there with them. And so I want to challenge you, don't feel guilty when you have to tell one of your believing friends, well, I'm sorry, I'm going to Arlington Stadium to see the Rangers play with a bunch of guys at work. That's not a bad thing. And it's also not a bad thing for you to sit among them and they'll probably pour beer all over you. And that's what we're going to find out, whether you're really a reconciler, whether you're really a person of love. I'm not saying that you agree with getting drunk at the game. Not saying that at all. But I'm just saying that as a child of God, that you are called to connect with unbelievers. And that's hard to do. You know why? Because there is alienation in the world. Sin makes alienation. You see, we can talk about missions to the world, but we're not going to have missions to the world if we don't have missions right here. And what I want you to get out of this message today, I want Lynn to know working in that secular job, he's working with several people in in real tension-filled situations. I want you to realize that that's exactly where the Lord wants them. To be a reconciler, to be someone that's like Christ in that situation and working through all those problems from a Christ-like perspective. You don't want Chuck as he works with people and in giving advice and accounting. And, and I want him to be a person that as people are asking for advice about what they should do financially, that Chuck remembers what he's learned from the word of God. He remembers what it means to be a father of Christ, and he brings that right into his business. And over time, the Lord begins to reach out to unbelievers, and they start to say, hey, you know, Jesus is real. This guy declares this and believes this right in the marketplace of everyday life. We need to be there. And a lot of believers are saying, well, Dave, you know what you're preaching, this business of being out there in the world and and being worldly wise but innocent and this whole business of, of connecting with unbelievers, you know, people can get hurt doing that. Yeah, they can. They say, don't you think it's really dangerous? Yes, I do. But I still have a Bible that says that we're in a war. Wars are dangerous. People are lost. You know, people get hurt. But man, I come back again and again. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, we have a God who is outgoing. He's not a car salesman who ripped us off. He's not an insurance salesman who deceives us and just is in it for his own aggrandizement. And he's not a waiter just trying to get a big tip. God is this incredible daddy in heaven who has a heart that's as big as all mankind. And in Christ, Jesus stretched his arms to the world. That's mission. That's what mission is about.